Hey, church. Um, this morning, um, we have a guest speaker, and I want to, before I introduce our guest speaker, um, there's a fun fact about him that I really enjoy. Um, as you know, um, our church um, sends out not just uh, a lot of people to um, missions or in the workplace, but our church is also uh, a place that sends out a lot of um, leaders into other places that serve um, or, or actually become other, who plant other churches. And it's just an amazing to see how the gospel spreads um, through many churches here. And so uh, this one person here had a really good quote that uh, I remember from my mentor and the person I, I'm under. So um, I meet up with Pastor Andrew often for, for leadership, for just life. And um, he told me a really, really cool way about, about leadership that, um, that he was talking about our, our current speaker. And it's Pastor Brian O. Young. And Pastor Brian L. Young said this, is that he wished that he invested more time into leaders, that he wished that he spent more and more time. And that stuck with me when Pastor Andrew told me that. And so I want to call uh, Pastor Al Young as he's our guest speaker today. And so he'll give you insights on not just on leadership, but just life. And so can we give a hand as uh, Pastor Al Young comes up? Well, good morning, CLC. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. And I appreciate uh, Pastor An's introduction there. And I don't remember saying that, but I guess I did somewhere along the line. Uh, and uh, I'm glad that it, it uh, helped Pastor Andrew uh, to uh, really focus on leadership and focus on uh, building a church uh, for Christ. Uh, your pastors are really wonderful pastors. And I, I know for a fact that they really love you guys and they uh, pour out their hearts and uh, uh, all that they do to uh, make sure that Christ's church is honored and glorified. And I think that they really do have this deep love and appreciation for the folks here at TLC. I, I can't believe this, but it was 30 years ago. Can and Maybe some of you here aren't even at 30 yet. I mean, you know. <laughs> anybody here over 30? <laughs> A few of you, yeah. But it was over 30 years ago that uh, my wife and my family were here at CLC and uh, we were at this place called Ward Street. Anybody been at Ward Street? <laughs> you remember the days of Ward Street? That's a long time ago. And boy, did it go by so quickly. 30 years, just like a flash, you know. But uh, one thing that stuck in my mind is really, uh, some of you folks here are, are, were back there 30 years ago, and even farther than that 30 years ago. So it's good to see a lot of you uh, old-timers that have, uh, you know, remained here at CLC and were back there in those early days uh, about 30 years ago. But what stuck in my mind was, you know how somebody really knows if you love a church? When they do something very unusual. And I remember uh, Pastor Calvin and Terry did something that blew me away. And uh, we were starting to attend CLC and uh, I have never seen anybody do this before, but this kind of like registered in my mind to say, hey, these people really love this church and really love the people of this church. You know what they did? They brought their two-week-old daughter to church. I've never seen anybody do that before. And that told me that, boy, they really love the people here because they're willing to bring uh, a newborn uh, to the church. And to, you know, they, they probably felt like, I don't want to miss out on anything here that's happening at church to the point where I would bring a two-week-old daughter to church, uh, you know. So that stuck in my mind. Is, and they're still here, Pastor Terry and Kel. 
They're fixtures. They're here for good. Yeah. But that tells me how much, how much love they have for the people here in the congregation. Um, believe this or not, but I'm well into my senior stage of life. I know you're looking at me and say, that can't be true. <laughs> you don't look like a day over 50, right? But I have to admit that I'm well into my senior stage of life and um, pushing 70. Anybody here, you know, make me feel good this morning. Anybody here that's 55 and older, would you kind of wave at me? Yeah, there are some folks here that are 55 and older, right? And uh, it, it's, it's what I'm, now that I'm in that stage of senior adulthood, really senior adulthood, it's kind of driven me to think about, you know, life and the brevity of life. And it's driven me to think about where have I been, where am I at now, and where am I going? And it's kind of a struggle. Would you guys agree with me that if you're in the senior years of life, this is, a, this is really challenging? I think every stage in life is challenging, but I would say that these senior years are even more challenging because you begin to see that the sand in the hourglass is getting smaller and smaller. When I was like from 1 to 10, and all of you would, would probably kind of identify with this, the hourglass was full of sand, completely full. Then you got in your 20s, and the hourglass got smaller, uh, but still a lot of sand in that hourglass. Then you got in your 30s, then you got in your 40s, and then when you got in your 50s, you begin to see that, wow, this is a midlife crisis. I better do all the things I need to do before the, the, the end comes. And now in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it's like very little sand is left in the hourglass. And that's driven me to think about, you know, what are the important things of life? And it's driven me to think about some of the hopes and dreams that I've had, you know, throughout life, I have to give them up. And uh, let me just share with you some of the hopes and dreams that I've had to give up and really kind of release and say, this is not going to happen. One of the hopes and dreams that I had was, I don't think I'm going to be 6'2". <laughs> so I have to be happy with being 5'10". <laughs> Nobody's laughing. <laughs> I have to probably live with the fact that because I'm a father of four daughters and one granddaughter, and we even had a daughter, I mean, a, a girl cat and a girl dog, that I'm probably not going to have a son. But you know, God is good. Sometimes he can work around that. And sometimes, you know, even though you might get, not get the desire of your heart as far as having a, a biological son, he can work around that because I think God created marriage for fathers who only have daughters. Do you know why? Because they can have son-in-laws. They can have son-in-laws. And thankfully, you know, God has provided. He didn't give me a son biologically, but he gave me two great, amazing son-in-laws. And guess what? Now I have a grandson. Can you believe that? Last week, uh, my oldest daughter gave birth to a grandson. So you know what? God can make up for some of the things that maybe are lacking in your life. And I, so I'm not totally giving up. I didn't have to totally give up that dream. By the way, I really like the fact that you had an all-girls worship team. Girl power! Yeah! <laughs> so I have to, in some ways, I have to give up the dream of having a son. I'm going to probably have to give up the dream 
of not being able to have a 4.0 cumulative grade point average. It's too late for that. So I have to be happy with the 3.8. No, I can't lie. A 2.0. <laughs> That's what it was, really. <laughs> I probably have to live with the fact that I'm never going to have natural dark hair again. Uh, now, I thought about dyeing it, but my wife said, don't do that. People will laugh at you. They'll know it's fake. So I have to give up on that dream. So I think, you know, for those of us that are in that category, uh, and even throughout life, even if you're not in the senior category, part of life is really learning how to accept the fact that you might have to give up on some of those hopes and dreams. And particularly when you're in the senior stage of life, a lot of those hopes and dreams are not going to happen. So that drove me to think about this. Does that really matter? Do those things really matter about life? And, and sometimes I think we might prioritize things the wrong way, and sometimes I think we might emphasize things that really don't matter and underemphasize things that really do matter. Uh, for instance, you know, how many of you would really like me more if I'm 6'2? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> You know, uh, if, if you do say that, then that's kind of shallow, man. You know, I mean, like, you know, I, we would like you more if you were 6'2", or you had dark hair, or, you know, if you had a son. I don't think that that, that would matter to you, uh, you know. I hope that wouldn't matter to you. And so this morning, I want to challenge us to really kind of consider and think about, maybe to kind of pause this morning and think about, you know, where, where am I going in life? Am, am I really kind of emphasizing the things that are, are not as critically important and underemphasizing things that should be more important? Now, there's two factors in life. Oh, by the way, let me just say this. Uh, in, in speaking about the things that are important and things that are less important, over the course of my 40 years in pastoral ministry, I'm, ret- I'm retired now, but uh, boy, you know, uh, 40 years of being a pastor... Uh, was very challenging. And I think every pastor would tell you that uh, regardless of how many years they've been in the pastorate, there are some things that are very, very difficult to deal with and hard hard challenges. And one of the things I think was, I never really got used to this, was when I was summoned to somebody's home and they asked me to come and to be at the bedside of somebody who's about ready to go into eternity. That is the hardest thing and over the course of these uh, 40 years, I mean, there was various uh, times. I, don't, I can't even count the number of times when I was called to somebody's home and asked to be there uh, when somebody was just about ready to slip into eternity. Some of those were like children. Some were for young adults. Some were definitely old. So it was a range of people. And I never got used to that. It was the hardest thing because it's so sad. It's so sad to be there. And I'll never forget this moment that I was summoned to the home of an elderly couple. And when I went, got into the, when I got to the home and knocked on the door, they, they ushered me into the bedroom. And, and there before me was this elderly gentleman who was on his deathbed. I'll never forget what he said. And it stuck with me all these years. Um, he, he summoned his wife. He asked his wife to come and kneel down and sit by him. 
at the bedside, and I was there with her and with him. I'll never forget what he said. He said, honey, please forgive me. Please forgive me because I should have, over the course of our marriage, told you more frequently than I did that I love you. And I could see the tears coming down from his eyes uh, as he was saying that and the sincerity of his heart and even the, the brokenness that he felt that he just poured out his heart to his wife and he, he was just in tears and saying, honey, I don't know how many times he said this, but he said, I, I forgive me, I wish I have, would have told you more than I did that I love you. And after he said that, he slipped into eternity. You know, I think when we think about the things that are important, sometimes we put things that are so trivial in front of things that are so important. I've never, you know, all those years in, that I've been at the bedside of somebody who is going into eternity, I've never heard them say, never, not once, boy, I wish I spent more time at the office. Nobody says that. Or I've never heard somebody say, I wish I would have invested more time in making more money or having a bigger house or a better car. Oftentimes the regret that I hear, and uh, just like this, this elderly gentleman is, boy, I wish I spent more time with the people that I love. I wish I had spent more time in cultivating my faith in Christ. And that's the thing that I think might slip away from us because we're so pushed by the world, uh, you know, uh, by the world and in, in fitting into this mold of what the world sees as important and not seeing really what, what God sees as important. You know, if we were to ask God, I think, the question, what is it that's important to you about people? Do you think that God would say, well, I wish that they would, you know, be professionally uh, do the best that they can. And I'm not downgrading that. That's probably, you know, important. But I don't think so. I think God would care more about who you are and not what you have and what you do. God would care about more about who you are than what you do or what you have. I think that would be the care of God's heart in really wanting to, to transform and form us into the image of Christ is who we are in him is really of more value than anything else that, that we could expend our energy in in this world. Now, there's two factors that I want to talk about this morning that are critically important in forming who we are. And uh, the first factor is really pride, which is in Proverbs. Uh, I'm going to look at a couple of passages in Proverbs. Proverbs uh, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, and Proverbs 16. Um, the first thing I want you to notice as we look at these passages is pride is destructive. Now look what it says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. It says this, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Underline that word, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Then also in Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, it says this. 
Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. The two things that is pointed out here in these two passages in Proverbs is that pride is destructive. The words that are used is disgrace and uh, disgrace and destruction. Now, how do we know that? How do we absolutely know that pride can cause despair or disgrace and destruction? All we have to do is to go back to the beginning of time. What was it that caused the fall of man between, with Adam and Eve and Satan? What was it that caused the fall, to have sin come into the world? It's pride, right? It was absolutely pride. So at the very beginning of, of time, when the earth was formed, when Adam and Eve, Eve sinned because of Satan, that we see that what was destructive and what caused disgrace and destruction was pride, was pride. They had everything they needed in the Garden of Eden. They had everything, right? Absolutely every single need was met. But there was one thing that caused them to fall. They wanted to be like God, and that was pride. It was pride that brought sin into this world. It is pride, really, that causes a lot of destruction in our world. Isn't it pride, would you would agree with me, that isn't it pride would, is a thing that causes country to go against another country in war? It's usually pride that does that. Is it pride, would you agree with this? Is it pride that really causes racial hatred from one race, you know, being superior to another race? Isn't that about pride? Isn't it pride that really drives or causes road rage? You know, I think, how many of us have experienced road rage? And maybe we ourselves are the one who cause road rage, you know? I think driving is one of the ugliest things that happen in our, in our society, and, and we see that every day. And it's kind of like, I have rights, and it's prideful. You slipped into my lane. There's no, you know, why, you know, they're trying to get in your lane and you're honking at them or you're blinking your lights and stuff like that. Isn't that about pride? Pride also is a thing that causes us really not to forgive people. And I think pride also on this other side of the coin is the thing that causes us not to receive forgiveness. Is that right? And so pride is very destructive. Now, where pride is extremely destructive, where it really kind of shows its ugly head, is that pride can be very destructive when it's linked with comparison. Comparison is one of the ugliest things that drives people to pride in our world. It is. Um, Comparison is what really talks, what, what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says there, do not let the world squeeze you, or do not be conformed to the world. And the word there, conform, actually means to be squeezed. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. The world is very good at causing comparison or, or, or making us 
like to compare with each other with, with uh, other people. So the world is very good at that. What does it do? The world says to us, well, you're not good enough. Only if you could do this or be this, then you would be good enough. That's one way the world squeezes us into their mold with this comparison thing. The opposite side of that is that when you get those things, the world can also squeeze you into its mold because it can make you feel superior. So when you get those things, what, what happens with destructive pride there in comparison is that, well, now that I have these things, I'm better than everybody else. So one way comparison makes you feel like you're not good enough for some, uh, not good enough, and on the other side is that I'm too good. I'm better than everybody else. So that is really what comparison does. Now there is, I have to, to admit that the fact is that there is, there are, there's healthy comparison and there's unhealthy comparison. We can't get away from comparison because we're made that way. But there is the fact that there is unhealthy comparison and there's healthy comparison. Unhealthy comparison says this, says, well, I wish I could be like that person or have what that person has. That's unhealthy comparison. Healthy, uh, that's unhealthy comparison. Healthy comparison is, boy, I'm just blessed with what God is, how God has made me and what God has given to me. So that is the difference between healthy comparison and unhealthy comparison. Unhealthy comparison will say, well, it will create jealousy, envy, strife, and even hatred. Healthy comparison says, you know what? When you look at other people and see what they have, the reaction you have is, wow, look at how God has made that person. Look at what God has done in that person's life. Look at how God has gifted that person. And you rejoice and you appreciate and you're thankful for what, how God has, what God has done for that person. You're not jealous, envious, or there's strife or hatred. But you see that person as a blessing from God, that God has made them in a certain way, wired them in a certain way, and it's different from you are. And that's perfectly right, all right, and it's a good thing. Now, we struggle with this, and we struggle with the fact that, that, that pride can be very destructive. What's the solution to this whole thing? By the way, think about this. When you think about comparison as far as religion, what do the world religions or most religions try to do? It's work-centered, right? It's based on how good you are. And, how, and so what does that do? That really is a setup for comparison. That is a setup for destructive pride. It really is. So when you consider religion... And what religion tries to do in comparison to what Christianity is about is completely different, opposite, because Christianity is about really forgiveness, acceptance, and um, you know, unconditional love, where all the other religions are really kind of like, what? and I don't think they purposely do this, but the outcome of it is that, wow, I have to be better, and I have to be, you know, good at this or be a, a better and, and sinless in some ways and, and that sets up that sets up really people to be in comparison it really does because it, you know in, in, in those other religions just I, I'm better than this person 
you know, I, I do more things for God this way and that way. So that's a setup for that. So what is the solution for that whole thing? What is the solution for this, you know, unhealthy and healthy comparison or unhealthy comparison? The solution is the gospel. Think about how powerful the gospel is. Think about how transformative the gospel is. Think about really the gospel is not about how good you are, but how good Christ is and what he's done for you and how he has substituted his life in sacrificing his life for our sin. It's not a matter of how good we are. It's a matter of how much we put our faith and trust in Christ. And his goodness, his righteousness is imputed into us, into us, given to us. Now, pride is destructive and can really cause, uh, you know, you can see it just in this world, what it's done, the destructiveness of, of what pride can do. On the other side of the coin, what is it that can help us to really kind of like replace this pride with something that's better? How do we come, become a better person? By the way, the reason why I call this how to be a better person, this message, is because what I'm about to talk about, humility is good for the entire world, not just for Christians. Humility is something that really is, is good for all people. And I think God would say that it's good for all people to know. Just think about this. How much better would politicians be, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, if they had some humility? It might be a lot different than what we see today, right? How much better would world leaders be, you know, if they were just to have some humility? And so we have to have a beginning point, a starting point. Even for Christians, we have to have a starting point. And that starting point is sometimes we jump, we want to jump leap years ahead when actually we need to kind of take an inch at a time or start off with really what is doable and what, what is important. And I think what God would say is, how do we become a better person, just a better person? That might make a difference in our life. And so in James chapter 4, 4 to 10, let's look at that passage. Humility is productive. Where pride is destructive, humility is productive. Look what he says in James 4, beginning in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Again, verse 6. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I read that verse again because I think this is the key to the whole thing about humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
Now, he started off this, this passage kind of really harsh because in verse 4, there's an indictment. And he says, you adulterous people. Now, you're thinking, wow, that is pretty harsh for God to say that. What does he mean by you adulterous people? Now, some of you are, are married here this morning. And um, let me ask you this. What is the absolute worst thing that your spouse could do to you? What is the absolute worst thing that your spouse can do to you? You know, and in my, uh, over the 40 years that I've been pastor, I also had a counseling practice. And uh, I don't know how many couples that I had the privilege and honor of, of counseling throughout those years. And through those 40 years, you know, many marriage, many, I, I saw many marriages, uh, many folks who came in for marital counseling. And almost the minute they walk through the door, I can almost tell because it happened so many times over and over again. I could almost tell what was the problem even before it came out of, the words came out of their mouth. You know, the absolute worst thing that a spouse can do to another spouse? Cheat on them. And this is what God is, this is so serious that God puts this at the very beginning of James 4. He says, you adulterous people. I can imagine, you know, and, I, and when I look at those couples and, they, and one spouse says, you know, I cheated. I'm coming clean, I cheated. I could almost, I could see in the face of the other spouse the pain and the hurt and the anguish and already thinking, boy, it's going to take I don't know, it's going to take a miracle to recover from something like this, you know. Uh, they dishonored the marriage by doing this. And I could see in the face of that person who was hurt, I could see that it's almost like the, the person who cheated, they cut their heart out of that person and put it on the ground and stomped on it. That's what it feels like. Do you know what God is saying? God is saying here, you adulterous people, because he, he really wants us to see something very critically important about who God is. And I think what we, what we, we appreciate the fact that God is saying here that, that it is showing that I'm disappointed, you know, I'm disappointed because I don't want my people to cheat on me and love something more than me and replace me with some other idol. And to fall in love with that idol and, and allow that idol to control your life. But you know what God is saying? is He's saying more than that. Think of this as an altar. Think of what God is saying as an altar. You see, when we see the cross of Christ, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's such a tremendous symbol, really, right? But we've got to kind of go beyond the cross. And I'm not saying the cross is not important. But I think what we've got to see is really what the cross means. What does it mean? Obviously, it means that God has forgiven us and God, you know, unconditionally has forgiven us. And, I, and it means also when he says, you adulterous people, that he's disappointed. But you know what else this is saying? It's an altar where God is saying, look how much I love you. Look at the deep love that I have for you. 
You see, when two people get married, what do they do? They come to the altar, right? They come to the altar, and they make a promise, and they promise each other that their love is exclusive, that their love is for that person, and they make a vow, right? And so what that cross means is that when Jesus went to the cross, he's making a vow. He's making a, a, a promise of this love that he has for us. And I think it pains the heart of God if we don't see that and we don't see how serious that love is for us. So see the cross as an, as an altar. That's why he says, you know, you adulterous people. I think it just reminds us of, of the, the, the deep love that God has for each one of us and what he did to pour out his love in sacrificing his one and only son to do that. Now, when we look at this passage, there's something else that, that, that's important here in, in James 4. It's really talking about when humility is productive, it means that something is taking hold of our life that points us in a direction that where God wants us to go. And that's, uh, that is really looking at who Christ is. And so when we look at this, James 4, there's, there's you know, how do, we, how do we become a better person? You know, when I, when I thought about this message, I was going to name it something different. I was going to name it how to be a holy person. How to be a holy, and I, that sounds really spiritual, right? How to be a holy person. But I thought about that, and I go, wait a minute. There's no way, there's no way, as long as we're on this earth, as we're living and breathing human beings, there's no way that we're going to be completely holy. There's just no way. Now, we can be holy in the sense, positionally we are holy, because when Christ died for us, he paid the price for our sin, right? So there's holiness in that point when God views us and we stand before him, we're cleansed and we're clean because of the fact of what Christ has done for us. But there's no way that any of us, and I think God realizes this and knows this, that we're not going to be holy in the sense of being perfect and pure. We still have sin. And so the better way to look at this, and I think this is where we kind of like trip up as Christians, because I think sometimes we think that, uh, oh, I've got, to, I've got to reach this point of being holy, when we know we're not going to get there. And so what we have to do is think, adjust in some ways and think about how do I just become a better person? And as I said before, you know, I think humility is one of those things that, that, that points us in the right direction of how to be a better person, humility. Now, and that's good for the whole world. That's good for every person. But let me tell you this, that if you want to take it to the highest level, of really what true humility is, you've got to have the right role model of, where, of seeing what humility is. And so it's about Christ. It's about Christ. And if we really truly want to uh, put on real humility, it's like we have to really kind of really study the life of Christ and to absorb what the life of Christ is about. Because if there's anybody who lives on earth who had true humility, it was Christ, right? I mean, we, we just know that Christ is an outstanding person. We know that, he, you know, just from his miracles that he did, we adore those things and we, we, we like 
we, we you know, see how God is glorified through those miracles. But I think what we maybe need to concentrate on some rather than that is to think about what is it that really attracts people to Christ? Of course, those miracles and all the words that he says, but it's his, his true humility. It's humility. So here's the key thing, and we pull all this together. We want to become a better person in Christ. And how do we do that? Here's the kind of the, the idea of this. To be a better person in Christ, the key is this. The key to being a better person in Christ is to become a humble person in Christ. Those two things are linked together. They're inseparable. And if we say we want to be like Christ, then the key to that is being a better person in Christ is to become a humble person in Christ. And this is how we do it. I, I have three ways that I want to challenge you with this morning to, to really put on this humility of Christ. See, what the Christian life is about is taking things off, right, the old and putting on the new. Now, this is how we do this. And I use the word ask, A-S-K, to point out what these three ways that we can be, have Christ-like humility here are three important things that we need to do to really put on Christ-like humility to be like him. Number one is this. Acknowledge God. Acknowledge God. Now you might say, that's pretty simplistic. I, I should do that. But think about this. Do you really acknowledge God in your life daily? Do you really? Do we really acknowledge him? You know what? I really like KFC. Anybody like KFC? Colonel. Now, when you think about KFC, what's the important thing about KFC? Where it came from. It came from very humble beginnings. When you think of KFC, you think of the colonel, right? I think of that guy with the uh, white beard and the white jacket. And if you read a story, it really is a humble story. It's an amazing story. He, he failed many times over and over again. And when you think of KFC... You can't help but think of the colonel, but what did the colonel do? He's the original source of KFC. I mean, I think about this and I go, and, and people throughout the, uh, you know, the internet are trying to figure out what is that recipe that he uses to uh, make that original, you know, fried chicken. And, uh, well, I'm getting hungry right now thinking about it. <laughs> Let's end this right now. <laughs> It's the original source. You like KFC, but you have to appreciate the fact that it had an original source. And so when we acknowledge God, I don't think we acknowledge him enough because I don't think, you know, the problem with, with pride and humility is this. It's sometimes not the words that we say in being prideful. It's oftentimes the words that we don't say or the thoughts that we don't have. And I think this is the problem. And this is really the problem with the church, that I think what, what, what happens when we don't have really true humility is because we don't, we're not grateful. We don't express our gratitude and thankfulness to God enough. And we oftentimes take a lot of things just for granted, right? Take for granted. We've got to get back to the original source when you acknowledge God. 
And so when you flip on the switch on your light, you know, for your lights, don't thank PG&E. That's not the original source. It's God. When you turn on your car, the ignition, you know, don't thank Tesla. Anybody here have a Tesla? Well, don't thank Honda whatever, or Toyota. You know, I think we've got to have a God consciousness in our mind, in our hearts, that all of these things that, that we enjoy and that we have are the original source is God, is God. And so really true humility, you know, is, is having that built into your life uh, this really deep appreciation, this gratitude and thankfulness for God. The second thing is this. It starts with an S. A, S, S is surrender. That's a good word. That is an absolutely good word for somebody who maybe, uh, for anybody who, who's struggling with pride, uh, the, the lack of or too much pride is really surrendering. You know, in James 4, it says this, the, the word that's really important there in James 4 is that it says to submit to God. Submit to God. And another word for that is to surrender. And here's the problem. The problem oftentimes is that, and we hear it in church all the time, is that you need to surrender your, your treasures, your time, your talent. And that is true. Because, you know, as far as ownership, when we surrender ownership, that means I'm going to give up those things that, that God is, you know, that I, I recognize that those things are from God, so I'm willing to give those up, and it's true. But this, there's another part to this that we forget. Surrender doesn't simply mean, and it, it is important, that, that we give up our time, treasures, and talent to God, but also surrender, when you talk about complete surrender, it means I really submit and I give up to God the things that are painful to me. My fears. My disappointments. The things that I really struggle with. Because I think sometimes our pride is saying, I don't need help from anybody else. And oftentimes, you know, there's a call to prayer. There's a, the church is willing to pray. And I think sometimes our pride is like, oh, you know, I don't. And part of that pride and part of the reason why I don't surrender is I don't want people to know. I don't want them to know the deepest, darkest things that happen in my life, the things that I really struggle with in my life, the pain, the sorrow, the hurts, the brokenness in my life. And I think surrender is we forget that other side of the coin. And oftentimes, and maybe it's sometimes some, uh, we as pastors it's our fault in some ways because we say, you know, hey, give up your time, your talent, and we don't say enough. You know, God loves us so much that he wants us to surrender all of us to him. Every bit, all the cracks, all the hurts, everything to him. And so that's Christ-like humility. And Wellington is, the last thing is this. So surrender is release ownership of all things. The last thing is K, Kingdom living. Kingdom living. How many times have you heard that over and over again? Kingdom living, right? Is that what, that, is that what Christ-likeness is all about? It really is. When you think about all the things that we could do 
for God, the thing that God wants to point out to us is, is to, to live like the king, to live kingdom living. Now, how many of you, you know, have a thermostat in your house? Come on, this is the 21st century. <laughs> you have to, you know, I, I'm a person who likes my house at a certain temperature. 78. 78 degrees. I don't care what PG&E says. I don't care what the environmentalist says. It's got to be 78 degrees or I die. Now, to solve that problem, I got rid of my old thermostat, which was cranky. It didn't work very well. You know what I got? Starts with an N. I got the Nest. How many have heard of the Nest? Oh, that's fantastic. I love the Nest. It keeps it at exactly the temperature I want, no matter what's it like outside, no matter what's like inside, it keeps it the same. You know what that's called? That's called a constant. And so, you know, if we want to have kingdom living in our life, we need a constant. We need a constant embedded in our hearts, a thermostat, so a spiritual thermostat, so to speak. Do you know what that constant is? You can already guess what I'm going to say. The constant is Christ. That's why you call yourselves Christians, right? The constant is Christ. How much do you know about who Christ is? That he can be really, truly your constant so that we don't just talk about kingdom living, but we live like the king. Now, let me, let me ask you this. How many of you love that saying along, you know, I don't know how many years ago it was, WWJD? How many love that? Let me see your hands. How many? That's great, right? How many love it? It's not a trick question. How many like it? What would Jesus do? Is that kind of like something you like memorize? You know that, right? Uh, more than a verse, you know, WWJD. I don't like it. Nobody raised you good. You, you passed the test. It's okay. But is it always the, you know, I, I think it's not really, when we live our Christian life, it's not often about a question. It's about an imperative. It's about an imperative. And so Christ-like humility really is talking about obedience. Obedience and gratefulness and thankfulness. So we need to change WWJD to DWJD. You know what that is? Do what Jesus did or does, right? Do, that's perfect. You got it. Do what Jesus does or did. You know, the, 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 the question is, we don't have to really ask the question oftentimes because all we have to look at is the life of Christ and, and we could just like, no, this is what he did. That's our problem. Our problem is like, Christ-like humility is like, we need to, to take the imperative, not the question, but the imperative, and to apply that to our lives. That's the constant is Christ. So just kind of recap as we conclude this morning. Ask. You really want Christ-like humility in your life? Acknowledge God, meaning the original source. Know the original source. Surrender or submit. 
surrender or submit not just your time, talent, and treasure, but your totality of who you are, your hurts, your pains, all those things. And the last thing is kingdom living. What is the constant of your life? What What are you driven by? What is the thing that keeps you on course, on target, and you, it keeps you from deviating from really what, where God wants you to go. It's Christ. He's the constant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this morning, the opportunity to share here with uh, these dear people here at CLC. Thank you for the pastoral staff and the leaders of this church and how you continue to use them to lead and direct this ministry. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us this morning that really pride can be extremely destructive in our life. And the only way that we can get a handle on that is to really kind of build into our life to replace that with Christ-like humility. And so I pray, Lord, that we will, in our lives, uh, in the, the daily routine of our life, that we will not forget to acknowledge who you are, that we will surrender to you every bit of us to you, and that we will have a constant so that we can live like the king, and that constant is Christ himself. Lord, I thank you for this day and for all that you have done to touch our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.